listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system awaited. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This month, we bring you the audio recording of our 129th annual Henry George Commemorative Address. Yes, we had to drop the dinner component this year as we conducted the event via Zoom with Professor Nicole Garan from the University of New South Wales and the Henry Halloran Trust. Uh, You can see the uh, slideshow she put together on our Prosper website where I'll also provide uh, supporting materials to this important discussion Uh, Her presentation was called On Planning Red Tape, Policy Performance and the Politics of Housing. And in this talk, she goes behind the curtain of reform theatre where uh, planning is blamed for Australia's astronomical housing prices. And of course, uh, this is part of the great diversion game Uh, such as uh, there being no speculative vacancies, no distortion from uh, the jump in property investors uh, up from some 10-12% in the 80s to uh, pushing 50% some points in the recent market. So uh, because of that, um, uh, therefore land supply is the most important thing and you should rezone my land on the sprawl to make me millions of dollars. Well, that's the sort of narrative that's trotted out week by week and we need more people to understand what Professor Gurren talks about on the 3CR airwaves. So I hope you enjoy this presentation and uh, check the show notes for further reading. Tonight I'm going to talk about the the performance that has been planning reform incredibly as some kind of a solution to those significant housing failures that we have in Australia. And I'm going to talk about it in three acts. I'm going to just bring us up to speed with the academic literature and some of the public policy debates in Australia and internationally around the planning and the politics of housing. We'll look specifically in Act 2 at the narratives in Australia and in Act 3 we'll look at how reforms have played out in New South Wales and we'll wind it up with thinking about what fundamental reform might look like in the context of COVID-19 and whether we seem to be heading in that direction. Now, we can't talk about planning and housing in the midst of a global pandemic without referencing the origin story of modern urban planning, which, of course, was around slum eradication, minimum subdivision, building standards to tackle the problems of overcrowding and slums, also very much in Australia about addressing the things that that Prosper Australia is concerned about land speculation. Now, the industry didn't love it, the building industry didn't love it at the time, but there was broad public consensus that we needed urban regulation combined with affordable rental housing in the form of public housing to address the problems of the urban poor. And so it was a shock to me as a a researcher a few years ago to realise that the problems around overcrowding, uh, unacceptable housing conditions, even disease risk due to squalor in our housing stock were again becoming an issue in, in Australia. 
And at the same time, the issue that seemed to continually preoccupy us was not that our planning regulation wasn't protecting us and providing decent and secure places for us to live, but actually that we were somehow in the midst of over-regulation and that's causing the problem of unfair housing and unaffordable housing. Here's another shot from the, um, from the Daily Telegraph, a hundred years later, complaining about the urban regulation that it that it, that it trumpeted at the, at the um, beginning of the last century, somehow managing to complain that the New South Wales planning system is the slowest in Australia, even while in the same news story talking about the approval of a hundred story, of hundred story buildings in uh, Sydney's CBD, a third of a kilometre high. Um, so go figure, I'd hate to see what a loose planning regime might look like according to the Daily Telegraph. But Australia and New South Wales is certainly not the only jurisdiction to be talking about planning and housing in the same breath as though regulation is the only problem when it comes to housing crises. Somehow jurisdictions all around the world are fighting for the title of having the worst and the most constrained planning system. And there's a, there's a, a dynamic, I suppose you could call it, economic literature around this that began in the 70s where economists modelled the regulatory tax around planning control, the argument that you're all familiar with, that planning constrains new supply and raises prices across the market may exist in some uh, jurisdictions where there are deliberate attempts to, con to control the type of housing and the quantity of housing purely to preserve things like a particular type of residential amenity or, or a particular type of community not saying that doesn't that that doesn't exist but it's not universal and the assumption behind the um, the body of economic work that i'm referring to here is that without that an unregulated market would be able to self-correct and we know the housing market doesn't do that it's different to other types of markets because homes are different to other types of goods now housing scholars blame the housing crisis on residential capitalism. The growing uh, trend that we've had particularly in the past 30 or 40 years around dwellings as a repository and a generator of wealth, around house prices uh, reflecting that potential wealth as opposed to the, 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 the good associated with using them as a shelter or even a positional good, if you like. They point to the rise of multi-home ownership, global home ownership, the rise of private rental sectors, particularly in the years following the global financial crisis, but also the rise of residential tourism as, a, as an asset class as well, this phenomenon where you've got people able to own and consume multiple properties on the one hand, while there are too few homes for the many on the other. And that deepening inequality around asset, um, assets and tenures different in different places, but uh, we could summarise it and call it residential capitalism. But as Michael Gunder, the planning theorist says, that's just really too complicated for most people and it's easier just to blame planning. In fact, he calls blaming 
planning for um, ensuring efficient markets, including housing markets, he describes that as a neoliberal scapegoating fantasy. So now let's have a look at how those narratives are playing out in Australia and you can decide whether there's any neoliberal uh, fantasy blaming going on for yourself. And as Emily said, um, I'm going to refer a little bit to a piece of work that I did with Peter Fibbs in which we really threw up our hands and asked whether governments were really interested in fixing the housing problem because they seemed intent and I think um, in many cases, it's fair to still say this. They seemed intent on doing busy work, holding inquiries, launching perhaps pilot, problem, uh, pilot programs, certainly announcing reform agendas, but all types of work that seemed designed to never actually do anything at all, at least when it comes to addressing the problem of, for instance, skyrocketing uh, house prices and the inability of first home buyers to get into um, the market. So our cast, you're familiar with them. We've got our really stretching the theatre uh, allegory through the talk tonight, if you'll indulge me. But our, our cast are the producers, the developers, the house builders, and, and their internal motivation is of course around less regulation, less costs associated with development. And of course, a narrative that pumps demand for housing. The more we say we've got a shortage, the more people will want to invest. Our consumers, a little bit more complicated. We've got some different types of characters there because we've got the homeowners who, once they're in, want prices to at least uh, stay the same, if not um, rise. And we've also got our renters, however, who have an interest in seeing prices moderate and certainly seeing um, rental protections and lower, rent and lower rents. And of course, everyone but, uh, in the consumer side of things want high amenity homes and neighbourhoods. Now, our politicians aren't entirely uh, self-interested. They're concerned about the role of housing in the macro economy, a really fundamental component of it. Um, but at the same time, um, there's a temptation, an irresistible temptation when it comes to housing to blame everyone else for everything and certainly not, um, not um, want to, wanting to spend money um, when it comes to providing housing assistance, for instance, for renters. Now, our supporting actors uh, deserve honourable uh, mentions for producing the research, the narratives, if you like, the plot through their information. We've got the think tanks and the IPA really uh, deserves the hero award here for its research and information. But there's also consultancies increasingly able to provide research uh, for payment, for a particular problem. We've got the media, uh, which, of course, sells uh, property advertisements, big source of revenue. We've got our industry groups and their, um, such as the Property Council of Australia, for instance. And behind the scenes, we have the lobbyists and that phenomenon of revolving doors, which means that some of these people are, are, um, are wearing multiple hats at the same time or moving um, positions around. We have to acknowledge the work of Demographia, of course. Every year produces a report based um, entirely on no data whatsoever, at least when it comes to urban regulation, but manages to find an extraordinary correlation between urban regulation and 
house prices. And of course, house prices are a serious concern. And we know um, in Australia, you'll all be familiar with nearly over, um, over the past two decades, prices in the major cities have effectively almost doubled. Sydney's been the worst of the lot. Um, you will notice, of course, that as prices have head, headed north, um, interest rates have headed south, or I should put it the other way around, as interest rates have headed south, prices have headed north. But really don't think about that too much because after all, we know that the real culprit when it comes to that direction of house prices, at least according to the Reserve Bank um, on this particular day, is the secret zoning effect. And they're very persuasive and we've had a series of, I mean, there's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to politicians explaining to us that, you know, obviously it's planning and we're not building enough dwellings and that's because of planning and that's the reason that house prices are continuing in that direction. But it sort of breaks down, particularly if we look at the excellent work done by Cameron Murray recently and others that point out, well, it's hard to sustain that argument when actually dwellings have been trending up. And in fact, the only thing that's really fundamentally changed in the long term when we look at the way that housing is produced is that we've had much more production by the private sector. As the, um, as the public sector, particularly in the form of social and affordable housing, has withdrawn. And even in the mid-90s, the public sector was producing over 10% of Australia's new supply. And so the structural change that we've seen in the housing system is documented by so many scholars, um, Judy Yates, of course. This is work um, led by Kath Hulse, uh, published recently by Ahuri, that documents over at least a 30-year period the structural change in Australia's housing system where we've um, We've reduced the number of people, as everyone knows, living in owner occupation. We've grown our rental market. In fact, the, the, more than a third of Australians now are living in, in some form of rental, pr primarily the private rental market. And as that's shifted, the actual composition of the rental market has actually shifted towards the uh, middle income, higher end. So rents have increased. Now that doesn't really matter in theory, because so too have the income of renters. And that's okay as well, if our middle income renters are content to spend um, all of that money on their rent and they're not trying to save for a home, then we could possibly say that this system is, um, is tenable in some way or form. But the real problem, of course, is the deficit at the bottom of the market, the absolute shortage in real terms of rental housing that is affordable and available to people on, on low and very low incomes. Beloved 3CR listeners, you're listening to Professor Nicole Garan of the University of Sydney, where she uh, heads up the Urban and Regional Planning Department. Let's go back to her investigation of the reform theatre behind uh, blaming planners for Australia's housing woes, not property speculators. So 
Just before I move on, I want to reference the way that we arrange housing assistance in Australia. We've shifted, as I said, from funding public uh, social and affordable housing. We fund a little bit, but not very much. We've shifted more towards rental assistance, income payments to renters in the private sector. We support, um, woefully under support, some people would argue, our growing homeless population. Um, but the big money is in the tax incentives for that private um, rental market, which has grown and the growing number of landlords receiving negative gearing. But the minute we try to redirect some of that funding, because it's not really that negative gearing isn't working in the way that we want it to work in terms of generating those affordable and available new uh, rental units that we know we need. But the minute that anyone suggests, as you're all familiar with, the minute that anyone suggests redirecting that investment towards new affordable rental dwellings, our industry bodies, jump up and say, you can't mess with property, it's too fragile, it's, an, it's a house of cards, hands off. And so we're left with the one song in our playbook, let's reform the planning system. And now let's see how that has played out in New South Wales. Now the renters, they're asking for something more than regulatory uh, planning reform, but the urban task force, who does seem to um, be quite persuasive, has really been saying, no, it's all right. Renters, as long as we focus on planning reform in New South Wales, we'll be able to address housing affordability. So here's a press release from the task force in 2018, new productivity commissioner was appointed calling again for planning reform. But this is something that we've done so well, well, We've done so extensively in, in New South Wales. We've started off in 2005 addressing concerns around land supply, land supply both in established suburbs, uh, releasing and upzoning land, as well as land on the urban fringe. We've addressed concerns around the inconsistency of our planning system by standardising local plans, by emphasising speed and certainty in decision-making processes. And we've even introduced some measures that I actually think internationally hold up very well around trying to diversify the housing stock through affordable housing types and higher density housing. And I'll run through those briefly. In terms of releasing land and development opportunities for new housing, our Metropolitan Housing Monitor shows that from 2011 onwards, approvals trended upwards. This is certainly indicating that we released land through upzoning in the inner areas of Sydney. We've also got more than a 10-year pipeline of land on the urban fringe. We can ask, is it in the right place? Is it being developed in the right time? Does it have the right infrastructure? But it's land and it's there. When it comes to procedural reform, there we've got a dashboard. We can see how fast developments are being approved. Um, that, that orange line through the centre of the graph shows that in 2007, it took 60 an average of 65 days to get an approval in New South Wales. It's actually 
across the board, that's not terrible, folks, but nevertheless, we managed to get that figure down by four days uh, a decade later, and I think there's ambitions to make those approvals even faster. And in terms of diversifying our housing stock, we had a planning policy that consolidated some existing things, but also introduced some new incentives for affordable rental housing within residential flat buildings, and also tried to enable what's often called in the international literature naturally occurring market low-cost rental housing in the form of of allowing secondary dwellings in residential zones. And what were called when they're introduced, new generation boarding houses, which in effect are micro build for rent units, very small between 12 to 16 square meters at minimum self-contained units. And the idea being that they would provide both, both of those um, policies would contribute to the supply of lower cost housing in the market. And this is an example of a newer generation boarding house can happen in residential zones, doesn't matter what the, what the local residents think, uh, if it meets the rules, it's able to be approved. And certainly we saw um, from 2011 onwards a steep rise in housing approvals and particularly what changed was higher density housing approvals and we were trending at over 50,000 units per year in Sydney alone. Sorry. And secondary units as well, those secondary dwellings became a really significant source of new supply. So in terms of affordable rental housing, if granny flats are writ, we were going great guns. By 2015, 2016, secondary units were the equivalent of 10% of new dwellings approved in New South Wales. And when we look at planning approvals in Sydney relative to, and this is a very crude measure, course, but relative to how we might project household growth, taking a conservative estimate of household growth at 2.3 um, persons per household, which is smaller than, than what we've actually had in Sydney. But when we look at that, we see that for most of the period 2002 to 2018, which is when the data series on approvals available um, by the New South Wales planning website, we see that over most of that period, total approvals actually tracked ahead of demographically projected household need. And the blip here, so the bit when, if we add the sort of additional approvals together and account for years when they were under, the dip of course was precipitated by the GFC, but we might have been due for a dip anyway, given the massive sort of over allocation of approvals that we had um, at the start of the period. And things sort of trending back um, well and truly into a healthy um, surplus there, just based on a very crude measure. Um, it didn't, as we know, address prices, but we could argue that the approvals actually are following the prices along exactly the same line. So this is another reason why we didn't see so much house building in that critical period from 2006 to 2007. Of course, it was after a massive housing boom and then we had the GFC. But then 2011, 2012, things started to trend up in terms of prices, but also in terms of housing 
approvals. Now, the reason, of course, that our approvals and our completions, because um, a, a huge number of units have been built, it didn't diminish price because they were overshadowed by all of the demand factors and some work also by the Reserve Bank points out that any increase we're feasibly able to have in the number of our dwellings and in the best year, in a bonanza year in Australia, we would be lucky to produce the equivalent of 2% of our housing stock as new supply. So any increase we're able to get is dramatically overshadowed by um, a single, um, a, a very um, almost small drop in interest rates. And of course, despite the increase in overall housing supply, the stock of rental housing affordable to low income earners declined over that period. Vacancy rates on another measure, and I haven't shown you this, but vacancy rates across Greater Sydney were around about 7% at the start of at, at 2001, the time of the 2001 census. By 2016, that had risen to 7.7% of housing vacancies as another measure of us having enough housing units. And certainly, even though the stock of low-cost rental units declined over the period, there was certainly um, quite a bit of housing stock showing up as being available to international tourists to rent and Airbnb listings as in terms of whole dwelling units that seem to be pretty much permanently available was the equivalent of more than 10 times the amount of new supply being produced in some parts of Sydney. And so some of those granny flats, some work by people um, in, by Lawrence Troy, for instance, um, now in my um, housing lab and others point out that, that the secondary units and the boarding houses haven't actually shown up in the market as affordable rental stock despite the aspiration, uh, but they've certainly shown up as pretty good deals on Airbnb. But what we've seen as a consequence of all of this is this dependence for those who aren't able to afford a rental unit, it's a dependence on informal, on ad hoc and on share housing arrangements for much longer than people would want to in um, certainly in terms of a normal housing career aspiration. This is just a map of our um, low paid healthcare and social assistance workers who are living in share group households in, um, in 2016. I hope they're not still living in share houses now, but work also by um, my lab shows that the informal rental market is alive and well right now in the middle of the pandemic is similar um, to the um, remarks that Emily made at the start at, at the start of this evening's talk um, and much of that stock unfortunately is overcrowded and some of it is is downright dangerous but the really important thing that we've all been worried about house prices are okay. And so I'm going to wind it up with a few reflections of where we are in the COVID-19 period. And um, if we look at the newspaper reportage, we can see that the concern around house prices possibly falling, I would argue the real concern that no one has wanted to really address despite all of the, the hand wringing and the busy work that politicians um, have, have, have performed when it comes to concern about housing affordability. No one really wants house prices to fall. And in Sydney, they're actually up by 1.7% so far this year. 
um, helped along perhaps, um, or at least um, the industry has had some support with stimulus um, in the form of the renovation bonus and the first home buyers bonus um, announced as part of the government's COVID stimulus response. Um, and so what do we do about housing affordability? Well, the Property Council is still saying that we need planning reform, um, planning reform to keep house building through the pandemic and beyond. Um, we're still talking about turbocharging housing supply. The Productivity Commission heard the Urban Task Force and agree. This is a brand new report um, just released um, last month by the New South Wales Productivity Commission, also discovering that planning reform needs to occur in New South Wales to make us a better and more affordable place to live. And in terms of our COVID action response, yep, planning reform, faster assessments again on the agenda. Now, of course, we have much more substantive reforms on the, on the table, such as the proposed reform around social and affordable housing, proposed by the body of advocacy groups, including the Community Housing Industry Association, and that's a much more well thought out, in my view, and viable plan around transforming the housing system, but also addressing the economic concerns around the construction industry. And so to finish up right on time, I'm hoping that at this point in history, we can shift to a position of real reform when it comes to planning and housing in Australia, away from the recovery rhetoric that we've certainly had in New South Wales and the the ongoing talking about regulatory clearing to, to remove those fantasy barriers really when it comes to new housing development, to shift to a fairer housing system, which is a system that looks like one in which our public subsidy and our public benefits are geared towards producing affordable new housing supply, primarily rental, but there's a need to diversify our tenure models coupled with real protection for renters and the capacity to introduce and enforce standards in the private rental sector, which we can't even touch at the moment until renters have those protections around, um, around evictions. And as well, we can use this opportunity to move our thinking a little bit away from the major capitals of Sydney in Melbourne and look at the regional communities, which I haven't talked about, regional Australia, which I haven't talked about tonight, but is certainly A, experiencing the same types of housing affordability pressures um, that we see in the major cities, but also, in my view, is actually part of the solution when it comes to rebalancing our access to economic opportunities, but also housing opportunities. In all right, listeners, I'm sure there was plenty of food for thought there. 
please ask me any questions, uh, perhaps in the comments on our prosper.org.au website. Great to see a comment or two from uh, the last episode on the Runton Mark. So uh, great to have your company here as we etch towards a future where economic literacy is seen as a vital component of our core civic education. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Check us out on Twitter at Earth Sharing. <laughs>